0: Welcome to Women's Human Rights Campaign Feminist Question Time, Um, brought to you by Women's Human Rights Campaign. It's that we are the leading global organization speaking on women's sex-based rights. Our main focus is on defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. You can find more information on the website womensdeclaration.com, where you'll find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 17,172 people from 134 countries and is supported by 338 organisations. I'm delighted this week that we have Gunda Schumann from Germany. She's a lawyer, sociologist and activist member of Lesbian Action Centre, LAS Reloaded in Berlin. Rachel Moran from Ireland, she's author of Paid For and founding member of Space International and co-founder of the Irish Women's Lobby. We have Borbala Juhas from Hungary, she's a feminist women's historian and gender policy expert. And Genevieve Gluck from USA, feminist researcher and essayist. All will be speaking um, about really interesting things so it's going to be a fantastic Um, event today. We're going to hear first from Gunda um, and she's going to tell us about the Lesbian Spring Festival um, in Germany and what's been happening there. Okay, so welcome Gunda and over to you.
1: I will talk to you today about the, in German, it's called Frühlingstreffen in English Lesbian Spring Festival, due to take place 21st to 23rd of May 2021. What is it? It is a traditional annual lesbian conference since almost 47 years, presenting a huge variety of nearly 70 events, including speeches, workshops, panel discussions, art exhibitions, music performances, and more. This year, the Lesbian Spring Festival, I call it LFT, has been planned as a virtual conference, financed by donations and public funding and organized by a specific lesbian group. Who are the adversaries of LFT and their speakers? Around 30 trans activists and queer feminist groups in social media, magazines, newspapers, and individuals, Try to shut down the LFD since mid-April 2021. The Bremen Senator for Health, Women and Consumer Protection has withdrawn her patronage. One federal foundation, the Magnus Hirschfeld Stiftung, reporting to the federal justice minister and one state foundation have distanced themselves from LFD. The board of LFT has issued a press release on 29th of April. Alarming. As to my view, there's a war going on between state-funded queer lesbians and autonomous gender-critical lesbians. Radical feminists are being imagined by some groups as an international conspiracy. you see LFT 2021 in the middle, on the right hand side, you see, uh, among others, my name, Julia Beck, some detransitioners, some butch lesbians, organize, A- Angela Wilde, organized in Lesbian Action Center or other organizations. And on the left side, you see, for example, Women's Human Rights Campaign and other organizations from Australian and worldwide. And we are all clicking together, conspiring together, and doing bad things. A good sign is that around 10 magazines, organizations, groups, and individuals have expressed their solidarity with LFT. That is WHRC. You will see a solidarity address on the website. Then the magazine EMMA in Germany. Then the feminist blog Stören Friedas. Then let Reloaded and others. Now you would like to know what are the reasons for the attacks. It's very easy told. The board of LFT has not explicitly invited so-called trans lesbians. Out of around 70 events, there are less than 10 gender critical events so that is enough that is sufficient to create such an uproar among the queer community and the trans community i have also been personally attacked i will talk about six groups or individuals in social media the teaser of my planned speech The title is Gender Identity Instead of Sex, a Trojan Horse for Women or Endgame for Lesbians has been criticized by the Chairman of the Federal Foundation as being hostile towards trans-identified persons because I am claiming that trans-identified men would be a threat to women and their female spaces and trans-identified persons, especially girls, would hide their homosexuality. As to the opinion of that chairman, it would ignore the gender identity and the self-determination of trans-identified persons. The group called Lesbians of North Rhine-Westphalia are assuming my right-wing attitude. The author of the so-called MENA magazine expresses her disgust about a loud lesbian minority having an inhuman ideology. The headline of that article, "Turfs are invading the lesbian community. The organization LUTs Reloaded has been defamed as well. Lou Kortz, a trans-identified man, he has a logo with a baseball bat on Twitter, which is the symbol for uh, beating up turfs, as you know, tries to analyze my teaser, criticizing the binary sex model, the presumption of what a lesbian is, and the attempt to stir up fear against inclusion of trans-identified men into women's and lesbian spaces. The Tuts, a left-wing newspaper, mentioned my deplatforming last year, adding that there had already been problems. My speech had been canceled by a gay and lesbian group after a shitstorm by the queer community in Berlin had broken out. What are the consequences? Several women, speakers, performers, have withdrawn their commitment with LFT. The Senator of Bremen State has withdrawn her funding commitment and probably others as well. The board has financial problems and is planning to sue the Bremen State Senator in court for withdrawing its funding commitment. Nevertheless, the board is planning to realize LFT. As a background information for you, there's a parallel incident for hostility against lesbians. This federal foundation quit its membership of Queeres Kulturhaus in English, Queer Culture House, because of an exhibition with works of lesbian artists without including trans persons. Afterwards, the Berlin Senator for Culture Affairs quit funding the Queeres Kulturhaus. In sum, an issue here is not hostility against trans persons on our side, but instead hostility against lesbians by this federal foundation. The chairman, by the way, will quit his job uh, very soon on the initiative of the Justice Minister, but that is a side story. Thus, the project, now please show the photo, could not be realized. Yeah. That was a short introduction to a very serious event taking place in Germany right now.
0: So we're now going to talk with Rachel Moran. Rachel Moran is from Ireland. She's author of Paid For, and founding member of Space, international co-founder also of the Irish Women's Lobby. One of the things on the website uh, Goodreads. It says, the best work by anyone on prostitution ever. Rachel Moran's paid for fuses memo- memori- memoirists lived poignancy with the philosopher's conceptual sophistication. The result is riveting, compelling, incontestable, impossible to put down. Uh, many of us have read it and are really in awe of uh, Rachel's work writing, but also organisational and speaking with Space International. So thank you so much, Rachel. What what we were we, we're sort of thinking of talking about is your, what you're working on now and thinking about now is prostitution and the politics of language. So, Rachel, uh, why is language so important? What is it you're sort of developing and thinking about? You
2: know, I think after 10 years now involved in the feminist movement, and particularly in the, the, the sex trade survivors wing of the abolitionist movement. And this has happened in my life in steps and stages. Um, the first couple of years was located here in Ireland. And then after I began blogging, I started traveling. And uh, after the, the book went out, the year after that just exploded. So, so I've seen a lot in the last 10, 11 years. And what I notice is um, this, this thread that runs through um, activism more generally um, th- that language, whether it's gotten right or wrong, um, has a huge impact on on how we organize, what it is we can achieve, and how easy or difficult achieving those goals can be. So that's why I wanted to talk a bit about language here today and I, I'll start off with with the obvious um, sex walk and sex walker, which of course we should never ever condone or use or, allowed to slip by us even in a conversation um when i'm doing interviews now with the mainstream media be it television or radio or anything else i'll always ask them not to use that terminology and i'll just be very straightforward about the fact that if they do use it in the space of an 8 10 12 minute tv or radio clip we're going to have to spend the half of the time with me dismantling you know the language so that's a good way to go about it, i think just to um Make it um, you know it's something that you just will not tolerate and the obvious reason for that is that prostitution is neither sex nor work. Um, I also don't put up with the term sex worker because if you do well then by extension you're you're putting up with the idea that there's such a realm as sex work um, and you know the it's one of those things that you could sit down and you could write you could literally write a, a twenty thousand word article teasing out all of the various multiple and all of the different um, nuances and subtleties and layers within all of that, you know, and we haven't got the time for that. But I just want to say that that it's, it's not a term. I mean, with the best will in the world, I see really good, strong, solid feminists who are solid on every other issue. Let that slide by them sometimes just for the sake of convenience or not having a row or moving the conversation on more quickly. But i think that we should always stop it there because every debate is won and lost on the foundation stone of language and once you take one step in the wrong direction linguistically or allow the conversation to take one step in the wrong direction um well everywhere you go from there can only lead you away from the central points that you want to to hold
0: Yeah, I mean that's so, it's so important and it's sort of relevant, um, or it reminds me of when we had Julia Long coming and talking at one of our first webinars uh, where she was saying that the moment we use the language we we call men who say that they're women trans women, we've lost a lot, we've we've sort of accepted the terms of the debate. have you seen um, a big battle going on uh, over, over? is it mainly the word sex work that is the battleground really, prostitution or sex work, or are there other, other words that you're seeing fought over?
2: Oh, well, definitely. I mean, sex worker and sex work, that's the big one. And the the history, because not everybody knows the history of that terminology. It came out of San Francisco sex trade of the late 1970s, early 80s. Around those few years, it exploded as a term and it made its way across the earth. Um, And this is the most frustrating thing that I find, by the way, about that terminology is that it has. Yes, it was invented by the pimp lobby, but it wasn't carried and disseminated across the earth by the pimp lobby. That work was done by well-intentioned people who didn't want to see women degraded and humiliated by the use of the term prostitute. And this is another thing that I've seen time and time and time again, is that your, your biggest problem here in this, this wing of, of the movement, and I think in the movement more generally, it really isn't ill intentioned people. Because if we abolitionists just have to worry about the pimps and the punters, the, uh, you're talking about a much smaller uh, faction of the, the overall society. But when you're talking about well-intentioned people who don't want to cause harm and are prepared to wade into the conversation with their informed opinions, well, that number of people multiplies exponentially. So that's what happened anyway with the term sex worker" and sex walker. And that's why it's absolutely everywhere. Every journalist, every broadcaster, everybody who would call herself a feminist, almost all, it's a massive majority of people who are speaking front facing with the public are using that term. And what I think they're doing, it's fair to say, most of them are doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. And that's why it's very difficult to unpick that. Um, but you have to keep at it. Because if you see to the linguistic ground, like as you said, Julia Long had said, and Julia's has always been very solid on language. Um, and she's absolutely right. You, you just, because when you see that ground, the, the argument will eventually disintegrate
0: and what about that because I, I find that uh, like you say that one of the reasons people use the term sex work is because they think it gives dignity and to the women who are prostituted and, it, and it's a sort of empowering positive step but it seems as if uh, it also has a lot of downsides because once you give it that dignity, then you can offer it to like students at Leicester University, as they're saying for the girls, young women who are entering university, they're saying it's a valid form of work. So it's a really, it's difficult. Uh, but how how do you get around that when you're using words? What do you do with the words?
2: Well, first of all, you can break that argument down fairly simply by saying that you don't dignify individuals exploited within an oppressive system by dignifying the oppressive system itself um that's that's not the way to go about it it's fairly simple logic and it's only been um it's been obscured um but it but it's no less simple and i think we have to just getting back to the issue of language keep it simple be direct and and be clear and you can wrap up a lot of these arguments in the space of a sentence if you want to um but we talked earlier on you know you'd asked about other other uh terms um and here's a problem and i've seen this on our side of the fence a good number of times um it's a sense of confusion with women they don't know what other language to use because they think that if they don't use the sex worker and sex work well that leaves them with prostitute and prostitution and they think as if um prostitute and prostitution were bookends and that they had to be used together and that you couldn't linguistically use one and discard the other. Um, But they're wrong there. Um, I will always use the term prostitution, um, but I'll never again use the term prostitute. And the thing, you know, if I was to go back and write paid for again, I would be making um, linguistic alterations on every other page because you move on and you evolve. And it's been eight years now since that book was first published. Um, and, And I've had a lot of experiences since then, and a lot of conversations since then. And I've got to know a lot of very knowledgeable feminists in multiple different jurisdictions in the earth. And amongst all of those conversations and all that learning, there's stuff now that I would never dream of writing again. And sometimes if I'm reading a couple of paragraphs from paid for in public. I'd be mortified sometimes. (laughs) Like I used words like client, which I would never use today because of course that justifies and dignifies and and normalizes what they're doing as as if they were rather than punters as we used to call them, um, actually going in to buy a half a pound of sausages perfectly legitimately down the local butchers. And I cannot believe my own ignorance um, as a woman who had lived the sex trade for seven years and spent years, I'd spent 10 years writing that book and I still littered it with the kind of language that I would reject today.
0: And so what about Are you, will you, uh, have you written anything, uh, with, with sort of with these thoughts or are you going to be able to write something that we can read, uh, to sort of update some of your thinking on language?
2: I'm working on something at the moment, but I have this kind of peculiar thing that I think about writing something as if you were a um, hose in the garden, if you know what I'm saying. And if you talk about it, it's kind of like you reduce the pressure. Do you know what I mean? So I'd be very tight-lipped about that book, but I am working regularly on on, on my next book. Um, and, and yeah, I will be covering these these areas too. Um, but I just want to make a point about the prostitution-prostitute Um situation that we have to deal with linguistically and i think one of the things i'm trying to kind of remind myself quite often and i've been at this for years now and it's not been the easiest thing but it's just to be gentle uh with the people that i meet no matter you know uh where they're at it's difficult to be gentle with people who are talking offensive nonsense up into your face but i do try um (laughs) you know you know at least i'm trying to try the thing is I've met women who think that um, we have to collapse all of that prostitution, prostitute language. Um, And I'm thinking to myself, and I I, I think that um, slavery is the most obvious comparison Um, and and Janice Raymond has made some fantastic points around this in her most recent book, um, Not a Choice, Not a Job, um, which is that you cannot you cannot collapse um, an oppressive system by the refusal to name it. You just can't. And that's why I'll always use the term prostitution, but to call people caught up within that system, the vast majority of whom are, are women and girls prostitutes is to do something that would kind of probably take too long for us within the scope of this interview to break down, but it's, um, it's very akin to, it reminds me of the slavery dynamic in that, and 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 I've learned now to think, it, it, for example, slave is not a term I use anymore. Even in my own thoughts, I think um, enslaved people because what that does then is it brings the perpetrator into the picture, it clarifies the situation itself and it doesn't, um, infuse the individual with the essence of what has been done to them and makes very important clarifications and separations. And I think that's what we need to do with with the terms prostitution and prostitute.
0: So would would you use the term prostituted women? Oh, definitely, yeah. That would be the the correct term. Um, yeah and that's uh for, i think there are many of us who are um you know we've we've got more involved either you know we've started again to get involved in radical feminism and feminism and politics um in the last say 3 or 4 years and so it's really useful to have clear sort of uh, advice uh from women who've been really involved in these different areas so that's that's really good so would you say that if women read your book uh they should maybe also read janice raymond's up-to-date book the not a choice not a job Is, is there anything else they should be looking at in terms of language um
2: well there's so many good books out there now um you know i think that um Sheila Jeffrey's The Industrial Vagina was a great book and I know it's it's come out a while ago now um really made me smile when I first clapped eyes on that book to see that not only um you know I I I just loved the, the directness the straightforwardness of that title um and also you know uh Julie Bindle's very recent book that came out um few years after mine, um, The Pimping of Prostitution. Um, We're seeing more than than we'd ever seen. Um, You know, like 20 years ago, there was so little written about this. Um, You had Kathleen Barry's um, Female Sexual Slavery and The Prostitution of Sexuality. That's a book, I think The Prostitution of Sexuality is a book that's overlooked um, to a large degree when we have these conversations Um, It came out in the early to mid nineties. It's a more nuanced book. I think it's a very important book. Um, And if we're going to look a bit more closely into um, pornography, I always felt that Catherine McKinnon's Only Words um, was certainly the most important book I'd ever read on pornography.
0: In terms of bringing it also to the Irish Women's Lobby that you've ne- be just been your co- co-founder of just recently this year. Can you tell us about what's what the aim of the Women's Lobby and also if there are any sort of relevant words that you're sort of thinking mm. of now you're using for the lobby's work?
2: Well, you know, um We had been seeing scandal after scandal coming out of Amnesty International going back at least 15 years, probably longer. And what you couldn't help but notice about these four different uh, string of scandals was that every single one of them pertained to women's rights and to the absolute contemptible dearth of respect that Amnesty had for women's rights. Um, and the thing that tipped me over the edge was late last year when we saw Amnesty International tag teaming with the National Women's Council of Ireland, um, along with the TENI, I think that stands for the Trans Equality Network of Ireland. So those three groups and many others, um, including uh, Belong To and you know uh, LGBT groups, including those that work with youth had all got together and signed, I think, probably the most disgraceful document that I've seen ever come out of the so-called left-hand side of the aisle, um, which was the straightforward call for, and I quote, the removal of political and media representation. uh, And that was from from anybody who had a problem with the the obvious and devastating consequences of the 2015 um, Ireland Gender Recognition Act. Um, so we've now grown adult male perverts walking around our women's jails, including men who have been declared by the Tavistock Clinic, not to have uh, gender dysphoria in the first place. Um, so anyway, we, we don't have time for all of that. But just to say, if, if anybody wants to thank anybody for the, the formation of the um, Irish Women's Lobby, it's it's not actually myself or any of the other founders who ought to be tanked it's the national women's council of ireland because that was the step that went too far for us it was outrageous and and as anti-democratic as is possible to be it was a straightforward fascist ac- attempt and action as far as we're concerned and i, I still and um, it's
0: also, i mean these, these these organizations which are in our name uh have by redefining the word woman are not not for us anymore so it's just it's just a little tweak of the name to say and including men who say they're women and then they've removed a the whole organization from us so yeah it's it, uh, it really linked up to words yeah so th- they uh have any of them changed their minds or are they still sticking to their guns
2: in a very sneaky move what we noticed was that the um while the original letter is still there, and so, of course, it would be since it's been screenshot to Helen back um, on the actual um, campaign link or the, the because I had been linked to a, I think with the change.org. Um, they, what they had done was removed the offending couple of lines. Um, so in that really sneaky disingenuous way, um, they're not prepared to stand over those lines. Um, but instead of issue the apology and the retraction and remove their names from the letter, which is what anybody with any integrity would do, um, they've just removed a couple of lines. So I think that 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 to me is is so straightforwardly contemptible behaviour. So what what we're seeing is just the contempt of women. It, it feels to me like a spiral, um, ever descending spiral of contempt towards women that I'm looking at in this country. And the fact that it's coming out of the likes of the National Women's Council makes it all the more disgusting to me personally, Um, as an Irish woman, but also as an Irish woman who's put her shoulder to the wheel for the last 10 years in this country and pushed very hard and had to, you know, sit up in the full public view and talk about the worst things that ever happened to me to initiate and, and create some legislative change here to then have the National Women's Council, who I ought to be able to turn to and rely on, and who, are, who were, in fact, part of the core group of the Turn Off the Red Light campaign, along with Space International, the group that I founded. So what I'm seeing is that every single time you have a situation where an organization is forced to choose between women's rights and trans rights, we women are flung under the bus every single time and I'm tired of it I'm sick of it and the, the wall-to-wall lies that are spewed about their being and, and in, including from the National Women's Council who say that there is no conflict of interest between women's rights and trans rights and I have that in a personal email from the policy person in the National Women's Council And all I can say about that is that um, you have got to have your head very determinedly rammed into the sand to come out with a statement like that. I just wanted to encourage women who may hear some of the more recent nonsense language doing the rounds like um, sex buyer's law to, you know, as a reframing of the Nordic model to, to really please do not support that language because... That's an example of us speaking out of both sides of our mouth. Um, We cannot say that what men are buying here is sexual access to women's bodies and is not, in fact, sex at all. And at the same time, reframe the Nordic model as the sex buyer's law. We're arguing against ourselves. So I'd just like to ask people to keep an eye on on the language, please. I was thinking about the the transvestites that we had to deal with in 1990s prostitution in Dublin. Um, And the... I suppose back then it was very much like the difference between a salad in the 1990s and a stew in the present day because back then we had men who were straightforwardly um, upfront about the fact that they were fetishists and that they were enjoying this and that they were were just turning up, they were paying their money, they'd be there for a couple of hours or maybe an overnight. Um, There was no... um, there was none of the nonsense that you see today. I mean, they were not pretending to be, they were not pretending to be women in the same way. They were, in other words, they were honest about the fact that they were pretending to be women. They weren't dealing, serving up the double deception that they were <laughs> were women and were also being honest about being women, if you can follow my logic. um, and And honestly, and this might sound strange to some women, but in the context of 1990s prostitution, they were amongst the easiest men you would ever deal with. And I had no problem dealing with them within that context because they straightforwardly kept their penises to themselves, which was a highly unusual situation in the context of prostitution. Um, but what, now what we see in the present day is uh, it, it, it's like that fantasy has been taken to the furthest point of the line and the, um, the phrase that men who appropriate uh, female identity. This is what we're, we're dealing with now from so many quarters. Um, and it's the difference between somebody um, appropriating that identity for a sexual kick for an hour or an evening and a person who appropriates it and demands and insists that, that you acknowledge that appropriation as if it were fact. Um, And that and and to to listen to even what was just a brief overview there about the intricacies and the entwinements of this attitude and this behavior and, and pornography. I mean, I'd imagine that's something that you could study for the rest of your life, but at least we're touching on it. So thank you for that.
0: So we're going to move now on to um, talk to Borbála Juhás, or to hear from her. She's from Hungary. She's a feminist, women's historian and gender policy expert. And she's going to be talking on Orbán, anti-genderism and us.
3: My aim is to give a glimpse into the special situation of feminists in East Central Europe who are gender critical through fun pictures and my personal story. I would like you to respect my Hungarian pronouns, so please refer to me as ő, őt, övé, neki, tőle, vele, rá, hozzá, benne, rajta, felé, alatta, felette, mellette. You see, Hungarian is a non-Indo-European language, and there are no gender. So all the pronouns, he, she, or it, is just one word, ő, and because it's an agglutinating language. Uh, You just put the prepositions uh, around it. So this all means actually just he, she or or it uh, and all the other variations. Now I'm sharing a personal uh, photo uh, which uh, was taken in 1998 at the CEU, a Central European University in Budapest. And uh, when I graduated as a history MA student, I was 31 years old. It was at the Central European University where I became a feminist and where uh, this career of mine as a feminist and a, and a gender expert and a women's historian started. Uh, the one shaking hands with me is uh, Josef Jarzab, who was then the president and director of the relatively newly founded university, uh, he deceased since then, he's a Czech, and George Soros, uh, who is of Hungarian origin, as you probably know, is looking at me smiling you have to know that before Open Society Foundation was set up in New York, George Soros uh, as a Hungarian already helped the uh, Hungarian dissident movement in Hungary before the change of regime in 1989. Uh, And he had a pivotal uh, role actually in uh, helping Hungarian culture. So we are in a very difficult position when We are expected to criticize uh, George Soros, and you will see why. Actually, my father, who was a historian, was on the board of this uh, Soros Foundation, which at that time was purely uh, financing Hungarian uh, cultural uh, and scientific uh, endeavors. And the next uh, picture is also from the CEU, which since then uh, has been forced to move to Vienna, although at uh, its premises there are also some research uh, staying in Budapest. This uh, is a pronouns campaign that CEU ran as part of an EU science project called SUPERA, Supporting of Equality in Research and Academia. And whereas in 1998, CEU was the place where I became a feminist, and where I started reading feminist literature and I learned a lot, although I was not majoring in gender studies, but in history by 2021 in a project that actually um, promotes uh, the, uh, Uh, position of uh, women in research in uh, STEM research and academia in general, so it's a women equality project, they talk about pronouns and as you see uh, there are half of them are men in the illustration, although maybe they call themselves women. How did this happen? I am wondering in East Central Europe and the Balkans, there are uh, special things that make it different from Western Europe. And not only the fact that after 1945, these countries belong to the Soviet sphere of interest, but there are uh, other common facets. In this uh, medieval map, uh, what is East Central Europe is actually the the lady's uh, skirt. It's the first time when Orban appears, and this is about the Visegrád Four special relationship. Uh, And what is the Visegrád Four? In 1335, the kings of uh, these countries, Poland, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Hungary, at that time they were not called like that. They gathered together in the uh, castle of Visegrád, which is in the background, it's in Hungary, because of the staple right of Vienna, the city of Vienna. It meant that the city of Vienna had the right of forcing any passing vessel or wagon to pay duty or to see its car, to say, sell its cargo in Vienna and Hungarian, Polish uh, and the Czech kings wanted to do away uh, with it. And that was the first time that they met. This meeting was reinvented uh, in 1991 after the changes. Uh, so Poland, the Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia and Hungary are forming a special kind of political uh, mini union uh, and uh, all of them are now EU members. Romania was also to be included, but then it wasn't. And on the photo from left to right, you can see Andrei Babiš from Czechia, Mateusz Morawiecki from Poland and Viktor Orbán, my prime minister from Hungary. The missing person is a Slovak prime minister who at that time uh, last fall was Igor Matovic resigned. Since So Orbán has this idea that the V for the Visegrad countries will set a new example and as Western Europe is uh, as a kind of last days of Rome, we, this pure uh, Visegrad four countries will show the way to a kind of Christian and uh, Europe where family is very important. Now, as I was kindly introduced at the beginning, my profession, apart from being a historian and a teacher, is that I am a gender expert, a gender policymaker, a gender mainstreaming trainer, and a gender focal point to different researches when I collect Hungarian uh, sex-segregated data. Now, of course, I'm not Mickey Rourke, you can see his picture, but I have spent considerable time uh, of my life explaining in Hungarian that gender does not mean transgender ideology, it does not mean the changing of the sex of children, and it purely means women or uh, equality between women and men. It's just a very uh, fun and short way of using this English word, we shouldn't be uh, worried using it. And uh, about one or two years ago, I realized that I've been partly lying because the meaning of gender has changed, and gender mainstreaming, and wherever gender comes up, partly it also includes uh, transgender uh, movement uh, uh, rights and gender identity ideology. And why I put the photo of Vicky Rourke. This is a clip from the 1987 Alan Parker film called Angel Heart, which is a neo-noir mystic thriller film where the detective, Mr. Angel, is asked to uh, discover who is a serial killer. And all along the film, he is after this terrible person. And at the end, it turns out, sorry, spoiler, uh, that it was uh, Mr. Angel himself and he was the murderer. So sometimes as a gender expert, I feel like that. So we in this region, but probably elsewhere as well, are between Skulla and Corybdis. We are between the Eastern right-wing anti-gender backlash and between the more and more mainstream left liberal gender identity ideology that is pushed by the EU, by the UN and recently by the United States diplomacy. No matter which tap we open, the hot water tap or the cold water tap, all we just hear is gender, 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 either from a very negative point of view or from a very, very positive point of view and although for Skulla for the anti-gender movement, gender ideology also includes feminism. So it's attacking us, it's attacking me, uh, corrupt this gender identity ideology. Uh, it uh, only uh, actually uh, is about LGBTQ and transgender ideology, but it in a way also attacks some feminists, including me who are called TERFs. I will quote sometimes English authors, this is George Orwell's 1948, uh, one of the posters, which was a parody of Stalin's uh, uh, Soviet Union uh, and uh, set in in England. And he invented a new uh, language. And Rachel Moran was talking about language. Well, George Orwell invented new speak, and actually, he added a full linguistic chapter at the end of his book. This new speak is new words that we have to use. They have to use in this uh, in this imagined country. And anyone who does not use these words, for example, gives his or her pronouns at the uh, beginning of a lecture makes a thought crime. I think anyone who was raised in the East Central European or Balkan region under socialism and spent a considerable part of their lives, we immediately there are these uh, bulbs that go, off in, uh, go up in our head that something is wrong when we uh, have to say things that are for us obviously not true. So as I said, the meaning of gender has changed and this uh, means a lot of problems in Hungarian. In the first place, there are already problems because we do not have a different word for sex and gender. It's the same word which unfortunately in Hungarian also means no. So nem means no. Uh, and when we have to distinguish in translations or in, in, in policy documents, then we just say sex and social sex. Uh, so the name, uh, the word gender, and I'm sorry, I know most of you uh, who are listening are native speakers, uh, but maybe it's interesting to see how it has changed the meaning, and I'm, not, I'm using the uh, the uh, explanation of uh, Esther Kovács, a very um, kind colleague of mine, from gender as a substitute for, for biological sex through gender meaning woman and girl, like in uh, gender gender quota, for example, which means a quota for women, or an analytical category of power relations, uh, to gender identity, a person's felt sense of identity. Uh, For example, I only use uh, gender when I speak or write in English in uh, the second and the third meaning, uh, and I never use it in the fourth meaning. But more and more, actually, the language again, Rachel Moraz was right. It's very important the language we use. It's getting confused, and we do not know that in different documents whether they mean one, two, three, or four. Now, the West have been flabbergasted by Orbán's regime, uh, uh, which is called a system of national cooperation. He came up with this term, system of national cooperation. This is a recent book on uh, Orbán's regime called Brave New Hungary. Of course, it uh, uh, is an allusion to Aldo Huxley Brave New World uh, novel. <clears throat> and Orbán's bust is similar to any like Lenin bust or Stalin bust that had to be on the desk of all uh, communist uh, leaders uh, under communism. Uh, Balash Dencheni, for example, one of the uh, writers, one of the editors of this book, is a, a CEU scholar. So they just want to understand in the West, like, how come that this person, that this uh, party, won elections for the third time with a two-third majority, uh, even though the uh, election system has been uh, criticized so they are wondering how he set up his regime they're wondering how come that the family is put into the uh, center of propaganda it's uh, one of the centers but also also financially this is a poster from 2018 uh, when they were uh, our last elections when they were campaigning with the family protection action plans it means uh, special uh, money given to uh, young married heterosexual couples who would like to have children uh, it's purely for demographic reasons and it's connected to the great uh, anti uh, migrant sentiments and propaganda that is running up in hungary the west is also flabbergasted like how come that uh, orban and hungary is attacking the european union which gives hungary so much money and uh, how come that he is attacking soros who is of hungarian origin and he gave Gave so much money to Hungary and also to Orban himself because uh, his uh, Oxford studies was financed by by Soros. This was an earlier poster campaign from 2007, and the caption read, "Don't let Soros laugh at the end." And it's a clear uh, uh, visual allusion to anti-Semitic posters from the interwar area, interwar era as Soros is of Jewish origin and the very enthusiastic Hungarian citizen in black wrote on his forehead, uh, dirty Jew. So again, this is what we are getting from uh, the government from the right-hand side and what the West just does not understand. This is a very very painful uh, uh, illustration, part of the same campaign in a right-wing newspaper where Soros, you can see him on the left-hand side and the caption read, the bitches have uh, eaten a lot, but they have served for it. And on the right-hand side, the words which can be seen next to this uh, lovely Hungarian uh, family with a Hungarian black pulley dog, it called God welcomes you, homeland, nation, independence, progress, and family and all the dogs, the faces, are actually leaders of uh, human rights NGOs, one including uh, a feminist NGO, a wonderful feminist NGO potent association with whom we are working together Uh, and it was very terrible to see. I was a little bit uh, surprised that I was not imagined as a dog because at that time I was chairing the Hungarian women's lobby, but I was not there. So that's on the one hand side that we can uh, see and which the, um, the West does not understand. So there is considerably a lot of literature written on this idea of what is wrong with gender for Hungary and for other East Central European countries, including Poland, for example. So there are different approaches, how they try to understand the scholars. One is imagining it as a kind of democratic black, black- Sliding, a kind of backlash, and these are names uh, who have published about this issue: Paternotte, Kuhan, Krijan, Rogeban, Zentai, myself, uh, with a wonderful colleague uh, Enikő Pop. It was uh, a piece uh, commissioned by the European Parliament. Uh, others uh, think of uh, this. Uh, liberal system as a polypore state. That's Andrea Pető, Hungarian historian, a polypore that's a kind of fungus that grows on trees and there's no way you can get away from, uh, from the polypore state, uh, which uh, is, is everywhere. It's also interpreted as an anti-liberal turn or as a post-communist mafia state, which is extremely corrupt. And the only main thing is just uh, steal money. Money. That's a formal, Hungarian liberal politician Magyar, Balint Magyar. This is only true of Hungary, not all East Central European or Balkan states are, um, can be described as a mafia state. And other political scientists, recently Körösenyi, Iles and Gyulai, they said that Hungary is a plebiscitary leader democracy. So it's not a total autocracy, but it's not a liberal democracy anymore. Now what is wrong with the uh, gender ideology as the uh, rights Uh, the right wing uh, is attacking this. One interpretation is that it's an umbrella term. So when Orbán says gender, uh, and he recently said it in Portugal. Portugal is leading now the uh, European Union for half a year. And there was a meeting in Porto yesterday. So he actually talked about gender. It's an umbrella term and it's a symbolic glue that glues together several things that are problematic uh, for people in East Central Europe. Petr Kovac, and Grebaska were writing wonderful pieces on this idea that gender actually is a symbolic glue when they use it. And also Esther Kovács, in a recent very, very good uh, article in Búdrich Búdrich journals, it's available uh, in English, uh, speaks about right-wing defiance to West Eurocentricism. So it's seen as a kind of colonization by the West, an ideological colonization. What are the results of this gender ideology? First of all, there is a big mobilization of people, not only in East Central Europe, but also in France or Italy, we could see that. But in those countries, it was not raised to state policy level, whereas in Hungary, it was raised to state policy level. In some East Central European countries, there were referenda mobilized against same-sex marriage. It did not happen in Hungary. Church sermons every Sunday speak about the danger, dangers of gender ideology. By this they both mean the dangers of feminism and also transgender rights and same sex marriage. The media, the right-wing media in in Hungary, it's the same as the state media, has also a massive attack on anything connected with gender. So both on feminism uh, and on transgender rights and LGBTQI rights. Also, it means an attack on human rights NGOs, as we could see in the previous uh, Soros and and, uh, his dogs uh, caricature, but it can also get to the law level or the constitution level in Hungary, for example, the constitution, which is called now uh, the fundamental law was changed in uh, last year. that marriage is only between a union between men and the woman and the father is a man and the mother is a woman. This sentence was actually put into the Hungarian Constitution, uh, attacking the idea of uh, uh, same sex adoption and transgender uh, rights. Uh, Whereas also in an omnibus bill last year, the famous 33rd paragraph, Uh, in a bill said that it's impossible to change the birth sex on the Hungarian IDs. So no trans-identified person can change their uh, IDs now or change their names. It did not mean a stop to medical treatments which are still going on, uh, actually. What are the topics of the people who attack uh, so-called gender ideology? As I said, it's same-sex marriage, same-sex adoption. Interestingly, the Council of Europe-Istanbul Convention Against Violence Against Women, some countries have withdrawn already, and this is spreading, and it costs uh, lives, women's lives, unfortunately. Hungary also instituted in a law that uh, we are never going to ratify this convention, although we signed it. In some countries, this is not Hungary, but Poland, for example, abortion is one of the topics where it's put under the gender ideology uh, uh, idea. Sexuality education is often uh, attacked, that there shouldn't be any sexuality education in schools. And the protection of family uh, is put into the center. And they, as I said, they saw this whole gender ideology thing as an ideological colonization by the West. Its origins were placed back to Catholic authors like Gabriella Kubí and uh, Margarita Peters. a German and a French author, to some Christian Orthodox churches. Financing uh, was tracked back to US evangelical churches, Putin's Russia, and extreme right-wing political groups. They put it into the middle of their, uh, of their approach. And there are some neoconservative thinkers or analysts, for example, in Hungary, Silvai, but I'm quite sure that in other countries you can name uh, others who speak about gender ideology. On the other hand, recently what we see, and that, that, that I'm talking about Karübdis, uh, uh, previously it was Külla, a kind of grand coalition is being made uh, because gender identity and queer theory fast captures the women's movement in Hungary too and in Central Europe, uh, Central Eastern Europe too. Why is it possible? It's my personal view. No research has been done about that. I think the young generation who probably are graduate students from Central European University Gender Studies Department or some other Western universities in the UK or the US or Germany, they are already bringing back queer theory. And for them, it's obviously obvious that gender is just a spectrum and that the intersectional approach is very, very uh, important. The liberal left-wing media as a kind of reaction to anti-gender mobilization by the government and by the right-wing forces, they feel um, uh, impaired to actually uh, write an article on transgender rights every single day. Now I cannot open any either tabloid uh, online newspaper or um, a serious political news site without an article, without an interview, for example, with a, a transgender person. Also, the big uh, corporate companies in their kind of pop inclusion policies and uh, pop uh, PR, uh, although they found it quite difficult to connect to women's issues, they especially find the word feminism kind of dangerous or even talking about violence against women. There are exceptions, luckily, but mostly they were kind of in awe of feminism, but they are not in awe of LGBTQI ideas, especially uh, uh, transgender rights. Donors' agenda have also changed. You see, as I said, in Hungary and in East Central Europe and or in the Balkans, the role of the uh, Soros's Open Society is a little bit seen more positively because they have financed, for example, the feminist movement as well and a lot of progressive uh, ideas. But their agenda has also changed and now they are only giving money to intersectional uh, projects. So simply women's movements projects will never get any money from there. Academic discourse has changed language. So for example, if you are in academia or if you want to publish or just have an Erasmus project, for example, with other European partners, obviously your language will be rewritten, what you say will be changed, so uh, or might be changed. It's very, very difficult to keep up your intellectual independence in a situation like that. And uh, finally, a political situation in Hungary right now is, uh, has been for quite a while, like a civil war in the heads, luckily it's only in the heads, uh, and people are either for Orban or against Orban. So we feminists are seen as human rights defenders who should form a coalition against Orban, who is the real enemy, and we should put back any other enemy, be it the, uh, the uh, punters or the sex industry or uh, you know, these transgender problems behind, because this coalition against Orban is more important than anything else. And lastly, last but not least, it's also needs a lot of bravery from uh, our part uh, because these are uh, intellectual and fremi- friendly allegiances. Uh, I mean, the leaders of, of uh, LGBTQ organizations, human rights organizations, they are our friends, our colleagues, we are fellow alumni of CU or other places. So, how, they expect us to speak the same language as them, this intersectional language, and practically they, they think we are, we are totally crazy if we, are see, if, we are, if we say something else. So what is the situation? How we can overcome this? What is going to happen? How can we get uh, out of Sculla and Karibdis, we feminists, gender-critical feminists in East Central Europe? I think we just have to be brave. And this is my last slide. I found this uh, wonderful slide strip illustrations to Andersen's emperor's new clothes uh, fairy tale. If you haven't read it, please do. I strongly advise it. I have uh, uh, read it again for preparing for this presentation. You probably know the story. Some crooks approach the, uh, the king that they are going to sew
4: uh,
3: new clothes from a thread that is invisible. Uh, but which can only be seen, but by very intelligent people, the king, uh, the aristocrats, nobody wants to be seen as stupid. So they all pretend that the king is actually dressed when he goes into the street. The people also pretend that he's not naked because they are afraid to be thrown into prison or executed. And then the bravery comes of a small boy and the small boy says, but he's naked. There's no clothes on the emperor and then everybody starts laughing. So I wish to ourselves and to everyone uh, just to have courage and bravery of this small boy or small girl. Maybe it's going to be a small girl who will say that the emperor is naked.
0: Both emperors, Skülla and Caribdis as well. Thank you. So we're now going to gen, gen a v- Vive. Look, she's from the USA. She's a feminist researcher and essayist, and she's going to be talking on the links between transgenderism and porn. So welcome, um, Genevieve, and over to you.
4: So I'm talking today about gender ideology, pornography, and sex trafficking. And I believe all of these things are linked together and impossible to separate. To begin with the question, why do trans activists, especially men who identify as trans, promote the sex industry? So I have here some common phrases that I'm sure most of us who have been involved in this discussion have heard um, more than once, multiple times. For example, the trans women are women. Uh, This, I think, mirrors a kind of mantra that can be seen in trans pornography, especially a genre called sissy pornography, where mantras are repeated over and over in order to condition the viewer. I'm speculating that it might be somewhat linked. Of course, there's no way of knowing for sure. Um, then there's also the sex work is work, which uh, Rachel talked about earlier, how this phrase is so misleading in a similar vein as the trans women are women. And don't kink shame. And of course, swerf and turf, which Julie Bindle pointed out, there's a reason why these two words rhyme. Uh, Swerf meaning sex, work, exclusionary, radical feminist, and then of course, turf, trans exclusionary. So the mantras, trans women are women, and sex work is work are similar slogans that are often used in conjunction with each other. Both form a framework for men's sexual entitlement to women and the erosion of our boundaries. The former conditions the mind while the latter colonizes the body. When taken in their literal meanings with the disappeared power hierarchy restored, they could more accurately be expressed as men are more oppressed than women and therefore men have a right to pay to rape women. So it's my view that men who identify as transgender are engaging in at least one sexual fetish, which is sometimes called a paraphilia, namely transvestic fetishism. Fetishes are overwhelmingly a male phenomenon and tend to overlap. If you have one, there's a likelihood that you might have another corresponding paraphilia. And in the sex trafficking industry, these men find their ultimate validation as a female, because they view women as sex objects and eroticize our subordinate status. I'm Going to briefly talk about each of these three avenues through which this idea is promoted, first starting with academia, and then social media and pornography, and then finally the lobbying for the, for the sex trafficking industry, um, beginning with sissy porn. Um, this is a quote from Andrea Longchu, who's an American academic who attended Columbia University. And this was a book published by, I believe, a UK publisher, Verso Press, called Females. And he describes uh, sissy porn as something which literally turns a male viewer into a female um, through feminization. And as you can see here, it says feminized and forced to wear makeup, wear lingerie, and perform acts of sexual submission. Uh, he goes on to say that the, um, uh, the asshole is the universal vagina. Basically, he reduces women down to an act of sex and then finishes this thought by saying that sissy porn did make him trans. Um, by the way, I forgot to mention, yes, there is some adult language that I'll be using and there will be some sexualized imagery. I reduced it you know, to the best of my ability, but some of it will be present, so just be aware. Um, and here's one more quote from Chu, which says that pornography is the quintessential expression of femaleness. Um, as I'll point out, he's not alone in this thinking. Uh, he presented these ideas at several reputable universities in the US. Uh, UC Berkeley, uh, Vassar College is a women's only university. And he was invited to that, to Vassar College by the feminist organization on campus. Uh, also, he presented this at UCLA and at Columbia. Uh, Here's another academic by the name of Astor Gilbert who writes for a U.S. publication called Transgender Studies Quarterly, and they're published by Duke University Press. So for those who aren't familiar, Duke University is a very highly esteemed uh, university. And I'm pointing this out because you can see here that he is working in the area of porn studies. So that's something that's emerging in U.S universities increasingly and I find it very difficult to track because um, you basically have to go through a university website's curriculum to find that they're doing this. Uh, For example, this is from the Australian National University website. This is posted on their website, Uh, a PhD study of transgender porn industry for the field of anthropology. This trans-identified male went to the US to study pornography in Las Vegas for a PhD. Uh, This is from that article uh, describing what it is this person, Sophie, is doing in Las Vegas. uh, Walking the red carpet for the Academy Awards, attend pornography film shoots, go to industry conventions and parties. Uh, Sophie says that he believes his work follows in the feminist tradition of consciousness raising to bring trans issues beyond academia. And then this quote, which really stood out to me, where Sophie describes abusive behavior on the set of a porn shoot in what's called Porn Valley in California, the San Fernando Valley. And really just the attitude here that it's just part of the job. This is another academic, Grace Levery, who uh, teaches English at UC Berkeley. Um, This is a quote from from him that says there is something about being treated like shit by men that feels like affirmation itself, like a cry of delight from the deepest cavern of my breast to be the victim of honest, undisguised sexism possesses an exhilarating vitality. And he spoke um, at Berkeley, the title of this presentation, The Kings to Anuses," is, I don't know what this was about, there's no video that I can find of it, but I just speculated on, you know, Andrea Longchu's kind of definition of women, if it had something to do with that, um, who is also mentioned here in his tweet. And this is from the curriculum uh, where he tweeted it publicly. So you can see um, it's publicly available. He uses pornography in the classroom. Uh, teaching sissy porn to the university students in, as well as you know other literature that's um, related on that topic. Uh, I don't know why an English teacher would be teaching these kinds of things, but there you have it. This is Jacob Tobiah, who also is an author, uh, wrote a book called Sissy, which is a memoir um, And a quote, this quote here that I have is not from the book. It's actually from the Playboy website where he had an interview with Playboy, which mysteriously uh, seems to have been taken down. But this is a quote from that interview, which says, women around the world have been treated as sexual objects. Yet if sexual objectification is so categorically awful, then why do I want it so badly? I want to be sexually objectified. The idea that being seen as a sex object is universally a bad thing is too simple, like many tenets of feminism. And before COVID happened in 2019, it was announced that Showtime would be turning this book into a series. Uh, no word yet if that's still going through, but. So, in terms of pornography, now moving on from academia and authors, uh, the the term transgender in 2018 was the fifth most popular search on Pornhub. Um, However, I wanna point out that these days, pornography has kind of infiltrated social media. Uh, A recent study that was just published, I think this month, about a week ago or something from the City University of London found that the majority of teenagers surveyed were accessing pornography through social media rather than dedicated pornography websites, which represents a kind of a fundamental shift. um, It really limits our ability to track these kinds of things. Okay, so sorry about this. This is where the like not safe for work content comes in, but there are these things on social media called captions. So they're called TG captions for transgender or sissy captions. Image on the left is from Instagram It's an example of that. Uh, It's an example of what would probably be called like forced feminization pornography, where uh, in theory, the the man is being forced to become a woman and forced to take hormones. However, they always use images of real women in these captions. I've never once seen a change to that. And then here we have a tweet. where they're basically saying that their dream is to be pimped out. And maybe you also notice the racial element here as well. That's another part of it. And a couple more of these kinds of things like uh, these captions where they're basically equating being sold with womanhood. Uh, You can see that they use the trans flag colors here as well. Um, And in addition to fetishizing being sex trafficked, they might also fetishize pregnancy or becoming a wife, uh, anything that they see to be quote unquote feminine or humiliating. Um, On Reddit, there are these forums, uh, lots and lots and lots of them, where they talk about these kinds of practices and exchange information. Uh, Just to point out here, the correlation between sissy and trans, um, sometimes if you try to talk about this with people, they might say, you know, that there's a difference. Uh, One is a fetishist, not real, not truly a trans person. However, the overlap is quite huge, and they will even fetishize the act of taking hormones. Um, I've seen testimonies in these forums of people saying that watching pornography made them start taking hormones and things like this. Uh, Instagram has started to limit these hashtags which is the only social media site that I see doing this. Um, These kinds of things are all over uh, Twitter, Reddit, um, basically every major social media outlet. This is from a Reddit forum for men who are trying to recover from this addiction where they'll openly say things uh, that I think are quite honest um, about trying to escape it, trying to recover uh, that porn addiction caused them to question their gender identity or to develop certain sexual practices. So why is this relevant to sex trafficking? Well, the trans rights terminology is being used as a guise to promote full decriminalization. Uh, I'm speaking specifically now in the US. Um, I believe it's happening in other countries as well, but for the best of my knowledge, I'm focusing on this. Uh, For example, the ACLU often promotes The full decriminalization on the basis of trans rights. Uh, Last month, a New York City judge dismissed thousands of prostitution cases. And this is, yes, in effect, this is a very good thing. We want this, right? Um, However, I'm critical of this because it was only addressed after eight males who identify as transgender filed a lawsuit. So this law had been a place where police could arrest women on suspicion of prostitution. Um, since 1976, uh, it wasn't really, nothing was really been done about it until uh, it was relabeled as a walking while trans law. And then suddenly um, there was a lot of motivation to get this law repealed. Um, This is from the news
1: article.
4: So this is Cecilia Gentili, a trans-identified male who is a committee member of Decrim NY, which is calling for the full decriminalization of um, the sex industry in New York State. Uh, They're currently having a moment right now where they're trying to decide whether to go with the Nordic model or for full decriminalization. And his organization is very much for the latter. As you can see here, um, tweeting out the mantra again and advocating for full decriminalization. And Gentili has the ear of politicians. Um, unfortunately, women politicians who are on the left, who are uh, democratic, who are supporting this move towards full decriminalization. Another example of a trans-identified male in policy, or sorry, in politics, who is advocating such similar policy, is Antonella Lerka who last year ran for public office in Romania in Bucharest on a full decriminalization platform. Uh, This image of him here on the right, um, not yours to objectify, I think kind of speaks volumes here. And the trafficking of Romanian women into the UK and into Europe in general has become such a, um, such a severe issue that uh, politicians are seeking to address it specifically. So here we have Antonella Lurka trying to decriminalize the industry while on the other hand you have, you know, or, uh, Scotland and other countries trying to get this in check. Um, the Romanian human trafficking rings target teenage girls. They abduct them sometimes, so groom them and traffic them uh, in terrible conditions. And the profit uh, here is huge um, with the selling of these girls. So no, no consideration as usual for the actual reality of women and girls um, who are involved or who are uh, enslaved by this industry. Your viewers might be familiar with Monroe Bergdorf, who also advocates for full decriminalization. Bergdorf posed in Playboy magazine with the title, uh, What, what Monroe Bergdorf Can Teach Us About Womanhood. And I My comment on this is that gender ideology seeks to instruct and redirect women back into their prescribed roles as subordinate sex objects and men who appropriate our identity are eager to be objectified. Uh, Julia Serrano is an American writer who This book, Whipping Girl, when it came out in 2007 was widely praised by feminist organizations. And in this chapter, which I believe was called uh, Submissive Fantasies, uh, I think, of this book, he talks about fantasizing abduction, um, forced feminization, um, humiliation as being the ultimate, form of pleasure um, to be viewed as a woman in sex slavery. uh, He describes as his ultimate fantasy. Uh, Along the same vein, Janet Mock, another famous American trans activist, who describes teen sex trafficking as an underground railroad for those who aren't familiar The Underground Railroad is a reference to an anti-slavery movement um, in US history. So comparing teen sex trafficking to the Underground Railroad here um, saying that this Underground Railroad of resources created by women enabled me when I was 16 to jump in a car and choose a pathway to my survival and liberation. This is a reference to sex trafficking. And so as a result of this kind of activism, this need to be seen as liberal and progressive in the US, you have magazines that are aimed at teenage girls advocating the idea that it's liberating for them to be sold. There are also these kinds of manuals and books that you can find on Amazon that are basically, transgender erotica um, of forced feminization. Uh, This is an example of one of them describing uh, being sold and uh, being pimped as a sexual fantasy. And the American Human Rights Campaign in 2016 published a PDF on their website prescribing certain language that would be more inclusive. Uh, These are some of those terms. Uh, The term that they prescribe for women here, front hole is a term found in FTM pornography. The statistics that are often used to portray an epidemic of violence against trans identified males are overwhelmingly from Brazil, a country where the sex industry is thriving, and also targets men who identify as transgender by promising to fund their surgery. Um, Of course, as we know, there's no way to make the sex trafficking industry safe. It's inherently violent. It's inherently dangerous. And a majority even of the American men who identify as transgender were killed in the sex industry. So it doesn't make any sense that they would be promoting this if they actually had anyone's interest at heart, much less women's. And of course, prostitution is akin to slavery. As I said, cannot be made safe, can only be abolished. There are differing numbers of estimates. Uh, Of course, it's an illegal industry, so the numbers will vary, but basically estimates are around 96% to 99% of those trafficked are female. So in addition to being an exploitative industry, it also promotes the view that women are disposable objects for male use. Studies of men who buy sex or buy women are who are also called punters, show that they are more likely than other men to rape and engage in all forms of violence against women. A US study found that they were nearly eight times more likely to rape than other men. Uh, We can see that again here with the 2016 UN study uh, that men who engage in the purchasing of women's bodies are more likely to be violent and more likely to have criminal behavior. Those who vocalize concerns and criticisms about gender ideology often claim that it reduces women to stereotypes. While this is true, I believe it goes much further. Gender ideology and men who appropriate a female identity reduce women to sexual objects and fantasies of sexual submissiveness. Advocates of gender ideology, especially the MTF, uh, promote the normalization of the sex industry because it validates their definition of woman as sex object and allows them to fund their plastic surgery and hormones. It's not possible to separate gender ideology from pornography and the sex industry. Gender ideologues base their views of women on pornography and are actively promoting these views in media, books, and in universities. We must not shy away from calling this what it is, a movement founded on the objectification of women and male entitlement to our bodies and our minds, which splinters women into consumable and commodifiable parts for men to fetishize and own.